This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, insights into how our minds work and just how malleable they are. New research, which might spoil the idea of the 5-2 diet for some of you. And a story about medications that's been bubbling away in the United States, which might have implications for Australians. Yeah, Sun Pharmaceuticals is a name that people might not have heard before, but there's a good chance they've come across their products because they're a big supplier of generic drugs. You know, when your pharmacist gives you the option of going with a brand name or a cheaper generic with the same active ingredient. And Sun Pharma's in a bit of hot water at the moment, Norman. Yeah, back in December, 15th of December, uh, the US Food and Drug Administration, that's the drug regulator in the United States, uh, sent a letter to Sun Pharmaceuticals um, basically about violations of manufacturing practice in a particular facility in theirs in Gujarat, in India. They're a massive uh, pharmaceutical manufacturer. And the, 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 the importance for Australians is that the, their subsidiary Sun Pharma is here with probably over 400 uh, medications registered with the Therapeutic Goods Administration. So these violations include potential contamination, microbiological contamination, in other words, aseptic technique failure, particularly with injectable products. They mentioned two in particular, but also perhaps contamination in oral medications as well. And it results from a visit they made to the facility in April, May, late April, early May of 2022, last year. And they put these violations to uh, the company at that point, and clearly the FDA was unhappy with the response, and this 15th of December uh, letter, pretty rough language, well, not rough language, but straightforward language, um, uh, was about, you know, you've really got to get your, your, your act together here, was really the, the main theme here, and went through a list of the problems that they, that they had. So this is a company that has a lot of products in Australia, but they're not all necessarily uh, on the market in Australia from that particular facility, are they? Well, now becomes the problem. So we may have no problem at all in Australia, or we may have an issue, but when you've got an, something like this running, it's hard to tell. So if you look at the FDA letter, there are two injectable products they mentioned by name, but they're not on, they're not on the Australian... Well, they are on the Australian market, but they're not Sun Pharma products. So they, it, that's not relevant to the Australian market. But then the FDA goes on to talk about other medications using code because they use a code which says which the code means it's commercial and confidence. So they don't use the actual name. It's like bleeping out the, the name. So you don't know the name um, or, the, or, or exactly what they're talking about. And we don't know whether those refer to products that might be on the Australian market. Now, we contacted the TGA and asked them about this. And they told us that they couldn't uh, name which... So there, the, this company has about five, several manufacturing facilities. So... You know, it could be that the products that are on the market in Australia, none are made in that, pro that, that, in that facility or none are in the manufacturing lines that are of concern here. We may have nothing to worry about. The problem is 
that when you're at this situation, this uh, this stage in an investigation, whether products are not named, you don't know. And so the TGA would not tell us which of the products are manufactured in at the Indian facility, claiming commercial incompetence. In other words, that they they promise the drug manufacturer that they won't actually say these things and breach confidentiality. Um, in the same way as the FDA doesn't mention that. We've asked, we've sent several emails to and phoned the company, but we have not had any response from the company here in Australia. And the TGA has come back to us and said that they are following the FDA, they have been in contact with the FDA and they are following their investigation um, closely and um, they haven't required any additional information from the FDA at this stage. So they're they're presumably going to be following what the FDA concludes. So the FDA has put some alerts on imports from this company but allowed them in. But there is a there is a complicating factor here, mm. which is the global supply chain, and um, and this is where you're balancing risks. And to talk about risks and the safety and quality issues that might be involved here, I spoke earlier on today to Dr. Faye Sim. She is National President of the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia. And unlike the Pharmacy Guild, the Pharmaceutical Society is about professional standards amongst pharmacists, training, safety and quality in medications and medication use across all sectors of the healthcare system. Here's the interview. Thank you, Norman, for having me. When I read this, I thought, gosh, this is strongly worded. There's no politeness about it. They're just straight in there and really quite brutal. Is that the way it struck you? I must say that the FDA has really used some very strong language in this letter. Essentially, what this letter is about is FDA has issued a warning letter to Sun Pharmaceutical Industries following inspection of their drug manufacturing facility in India back in 2022. And the letter basically raised some violations of the CGMP, which is the current good manufacturing practice regulations. The letter goes on and raised some concerns around the standard at the quality and the safety of medicines manufactured by Sun Pharma. And essentially what they did is the FDA sent delegates to visit the sites. And after the assessment process, the FDA identified a number of areas of concerns from the conditions of the manufacturing facilities to the process of manufacturing. But at this stage, my understanding, reading this letter and based on the information that's available, FDA has not yet deregistered any of the products, but I've given Sun Pharma the opportunity to deliver on a remediation plan and to undertake retrospective assessment of their processes and procedures. But it's more than that, isn't it, Faye? Because they were clearly unhappy with the response they got after their visit in April. Yes. So based on the letter, the FDA mentioned that Sun Pharma was provided an opportunity to respond and FDA, after assessing the response, decided not to accept the response and actually proceeded to giving them another opportunity to come up with a remediation plan. And I think in this case, whilst there were issues raised by the FDA about Sun Pharma, we have to take into consideration, and this is one of the FDA's consideration as well, that Sun Pharma is a major manufacturing company that is responsible for the supply of medicines, including generic medicines worldwide. And we know that accessibility of medicine is quite important to try and avoid that um, sudden medicine shortage issue worldwide. Yeah, but I mean, that's like the too big to fail argument in the finance sector is, oh, well, we can't go after JP Morgan or another big bank because if they fail, they'd be catastrophic. I mean, can you sacrifice quality issues for fear of the global supply chain? 
Oh, no, absolutely not to sacrifice on, you know, the quality and the safety. The integrity and safety of medicines should never be compromised. So, I mean, that is something that we all must be really clear. So just looking at it as a pharmacist, also an academic pharmacist and somebody who spent their life interested in safety and quality, when you read between the lines about their problems with manufacturing practice, particularly mm-hmm. in this Indian facility, what could be the end result of that in the pill or the injectable that they produce? They largely have kept confidential when it comes to exactly what medicines and what lines are affected. The letter does raise issues, but the letter wasn't very clear in terms of the severity and the implication. So I think before we sort of jump into conclusion around how severe this is, from an Australian perspective in this case, I think what's more important is that our TGA works very closely with the FDA to monitor the situation, not just ensuring that medicines that are coming to Australia are going to be safe and effective, but also at the same time, if there was going to be a potential issue on global supply chain, how are we going to manage this? And the TGA actually follows what we call a risk-based approach when assessing medicines. What we need to consider here is to have an independent process to interrogate this. What is our appetite in terms of risk acceptance? Does the availability of the medicines outweigh the potential risk here? So I think there needs to be a lot of transparency and communication to instill back a level of confidence amongst but, the health professionals but and the our public. T- but the TGA has refused to say to us when we've asked them which of Sun Pharma's products, the many products that are on the market, are manufactured in this Indian facility. So that's commercial and confidence. But isn't the TGA supposed to be protecting consumer safety here? I mean, there's lack of transparency. There may be no issue at all with Sun Pharma's products products in Australia that may be manufactured in many of the many other facilities or the manufacturing lines may not be the ones in question. But it does raise issues that when you're not transparent, people's fear levels go up. Obviously, transparency and communication is critical. In this particular instance, though, the letter from the FDA was dated the 15th of December and essentially FDA has given Sun Pharma a period of time to address these issues. I'm not going to speak on behalf of the TGA, but that probably is something that would be useful to speak directly with the TGA on this. But I would expect a level of collaboration and transparency between FDA and TGA so that this can be managed together. In summary then with Sun Pharma, if you were an Australian consumer, how concerned should you be given the lack of information? Look, at this stage, based on just the information that's available, I wouldn't take this as an immediate alarming situation yet, only because it does look like there is a system and process in place. What we don't know, Norman, is we don't know how severe is the situation and what the clinical implication is because that information is not made available to us at this stage. But what we have to do is to trust that we do have that process in place. But at the same time, it's also equally important that people who need to rely on these medicines to manage their health conditions to keep them safe and healthy, continue to have access to those medicines. So I think there's a balance here to consider what is that risk? Is that risk acceptable? And does that risk outweigh the availability of medicines? And how are we going to manage this in a pragmatic and a proactive manner? Not an easy issue. Dr. Faye Sim is National President of the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia. And we'll keep a close eye on this story and publish the FDA letter and the responses from the Therapeutic Goods Administration on our website. And we'll also have an online story on ABC Online. This is The Health Report. 
Intermittent fasting diets have become incredibly popular and take various forms. The 16-8, which narrows your eating into an eight-hour window each day. And the 5-2, which means there are two fasting days per week, maybe at around 500 calories each. Most people probably go onto these diets to lose weight and maybe hope that they also become more metabolically healthy, say in terms of the way you control your blood sugar. But another aim is to slow down biological ageing and calm, say, an overactive immune system which ages your tissue through inflammation and to improve the garbage disposal of old deadbeat cells from your tissues or substances which promote ageing inside your tissues. Now, while there's lots of evidence for the benefits of the 5-2 diet in animals, there actually hasn't been much in humans. And if the evidence that there is is a bit mixed. But Professor Luigi Fontana at the Charles Perkins Centre has been leading an international team in a randomised trial of intermittent fasting in overweight men and women whose average age was in their late 40s. And the latest results are sobering and counterintuitive. You've got to be careful with what you eat on your five days of eating. And you don't want to lose too much weight, at least according to these results. Luigi, welcome back to The Health Report. Hello. Hi, Norman. Thank you for having me. Now, they weren't all on a 5-2. Some were on a 4-3, depending on how heavy they were. Yes, exactly. So that was the design of the study. So we wanted to test if uh, intermittent fasting, well, 5-2 or 4-3 diet, uh, was uh, responsible for the same beneficial effects that we have seen in animals. And the answer of these randomized clinical trials are mixed. So if your interest is to lose weight and body fat, it was fantastically. In six months, the participants of this study lost, on average, 8% body weight, 16% body fat measured by DEXA is the gold standard. And some people, the superstar, they lost 20 kilos in six months. Gosh. So it's pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah, impressive. You know, I was impressed. And, you know, we also saw, we also measured leptin, adiponectin, and there was significant reduction in leptin, this, this adipokine that is basically signaling to the brain how much energy is stored in adipose tissue. And adiponectin, high So just to, adiponectin. just to explain here is there's a feedback loop from your fat yeah. tissue. Your fat tissue is not... Um, inert in your body it's very active and and messages like your muscles message or your heart messages and tells your brain how much fat you've got on board and that's supposed to adjust your appetite levels and your intake absolutely you you you, you, you that's that that's right and then you know we saw a deconnecting going up significantly so from a from a body composition and the adipokine metabolism it worked beautifully but but then you know we asked okay but uh is this really improving longevity, is slowing down aging? And as you know, inflammation, inflammaging, and insulin sensitivity, glucose tolerance are two of the most important biomarkers of healthy aging. So we measure C-reactive protein and an extensive panel of cytokines and chemokines in the blood, no change, no change whatsoever. So just to explain, CRP, is basically a measure of inflammation in the body. And you're also measuring other really hormones that work at a very short distance in the immune system that either fire it up or settle it down. And what you're saying is that in terms of this important process, which really fibroses and ages you from the inside out, it didn't go down, which is interesting given that you lost fat. And people have said, oh, if you lose fat, this is going to be good for inflammation, but not necessarily. Yes, exactly. That's one. 
And then, you know, we did an OGTT, an oral glucose tolerance test to measure glucose tolerance and insulin sensitivity. So how basically your uh, blood sugar is controlled, blood sugar responds to the insulin levels. And we found tiny changes that were where, you know, some of them were significant, statistically significant, but clinically very small compared to previous studies that I did when I was at, uh, in U.S. at Washington University, where with a similar percentage of weight loss through exercise, endurance exercise, or calorie restriction with optimal nutrition, we saw massive improvements in glucose tolerance, insulin sensitivity, and inflammation. Which has made you come to the conclusion, although it wasn't necessarily from the study itself, is that the problem here is what you eat on your five days of free eating. Yes. So this study, together with other studies of my group and other people in U.S. and other parts of Europe, are strongly suggesting that a calorie is not a calorie. Basically, what you eat during the feasting days is deeply influencing the metabolic response to weight loss. So whilst you and others have said, look, the way, the way to slow down aging is to get a calorie gap in your, in your metabolism, so you're burning more than you're actually consuming, it actually isn't as simple as that because it depends on what calories you're consuming. Yes, and also the ex- the amount of exercise. Absolutely. So, what's so the, the recipe? The protein, the quality of protein. There are studies showing you know the quality of proteins are deeply influencing insulin sensitivity and the gut microbiota. So, the composition of the gut microbiota, that of course is determined of what type of food you are eating, is also influencing inflammation and insulin sensitivity. So, what is it about protein? So there, there is this study in, 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 uh, published in, uh, in cell reports by Bettina Mittendorfer from Washu, where she, uh, she took women who were obese and she randomized to 10% weight loss on a high-protein diet, 1.3 grams per kilogram body weight, or normal-protein diet, 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. So both, both of them, they lost the same body weight by design, same visceral fat and liver fat measured by MRI. But when Bettina did the clamp, those who lost 10% on the normal protein diet had a beautiful improvement in insulin sensitivity. Those who lost the same body weight, visceral fat and liver fat on a high protein diet had zero improvement in insulin sensitivity. Again, suggesting that a high protein diet is preventing the metabolic improvements driven by weight loss. So bottom line is the Mediterranean-style diet, which is moderate in protein and mixed in terms of the high nutrition content is the way to go on your days on. Yeah, I just wrote a practical book called The Manual of Healthy Longevity, where we have a number of recipes, you know, describing this kind of high-quality diet, exercise, and other uh, interventions that can promote health overall. And just finally, people who lost too much weight also had an issue. Yeah, interestingly, in a subset of these, of these people, we collected colon mucosa biopsies and we did RNA sequencing and we look at the number of uh, genes, uh, aging genes, you know, autophagy genes and uh, mTOR is a, a major regulator of aging within our cells. And we found, interestingly, these are very preliminary data because it was a 
a subset of these participants, you know, gene expression. But we found that there is a hot spot. So if you lose too much weight with this uh, intermittent fasting, you are basically inhibiting the, the, the uh, autophagy and uh, the autophagy genes, so the, the genes that are removing garbage from, from your cells. We'll have to go, Luigi, but thank you for joining us. And the message here is watch what you eat on your five days on and don't lose too much. A bit of frugality, perhaps, rather than major fasting. Thanks very much, Luigi. Thank you. Professor Luigi Fontana is at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. Our bodies are amazing machines, but for a large part, machine really is the word for it. Our heart pumps the blood around, our lungs expand and contract, pulling in and pushing out air. Our bones give us structure, moved by our muscles. But one of the biggest mysteries of our bodies concerns one of the most vital parts, our brains, or precisely our minds. With mental health at the front of, well, mind than ever, our curiosity about how our minds work and how to keep them healthy is running high. You could say it's a perfect time to bring out a book on the topic, which is exactly what our next guests have done. The book is called Minding Your Mind, and its authors are James O'Loughlin and Professor Ian Hickey. Welcome to both of you. Hi, thanks. James, Hi. <laughs> the book is based on your podcast of the same name. Why are we so curious about how our minds work? Yeah, this whole project has been a great education for me. Ian knows everything about the mind, but is still curious. But for me, going through this with him was a great education. And I don't know, I've never been so interested in my knee. Like, I'm kind of interested in my knee because it's a pretty amazing bit of uh, engineering. But I'm much more interested in why I feel anxious sometimes when something little happens and then something big happens and I don't feel anxious at all. Why some days I feel great and I, I'm, I'm up and at and I feel really clever and productive and other days I feel sluggish. And I'm really interested in what I can do to control that. I think often with mental health, we've just thought the world's bad today rather than my mental health isn't that great today and actually there are things I can do to, to, to improve it. I, it's not all outside of my control. Some of that is within my control. Sometimes when you start paying attention to the way your mind works, you just realise how not in control you are or you feel like you are anyway. Uh, James, the, the questions in the podcast and the book, are they only your questions or are they ones that people have submitted as well? Um, yeah, we've certainly got lots of um, lots of input from uh, from listeners who've sent in lots of questions and even suggested some really good topics, and from kind of family and friends. I mean, whenever we're doing a topic, and I know Ian does this too. Well, I kind of you know I just throw it to people. We're doing something on anger today. What do you want to know about being angry? Do you ever get angry? Why do you get angry? Do you always regret it like I do? All that sort of stuff. So just I guess talking to people. And, and going out and thinking, okay, we're, we're, ta we're tackling this subject at the moment. What can, I, what can I harvest from, you know, my own social connections about the things that we don't know? And, we, and, you know, do some research as well, of course, although most of the entire research of mental health seems to be in Ian's mind. <laughs> well, we better ask Ian some questions then. Ian, one of the topics you canvas in the book is this sense that I just, I am the way I am and there's sort of nothing you can do about it. But actually, our minds are malleable. To what extent? 
More and more, I think, is the answer to that, Tegan. I mean, not completely. You can't completely be someone else in terms of the way you think, the way you respond. But people don't stop and dwell enough. People are not like James. They don't actually stop and think about what is that thing? How am I responding? What's my emotionality? Have I always been like that? Could I be different? In what ways could I change? So I think what James demonstrates is how much public interest there is in really trying to find out what we do know. I'm often saying what we don't know, but at least what, where the research is at and that it isn't simply just your brain, it's your brain and your body, it's your whole physiology. What do we know? What runs in families? What things like your body clock are important? How are emotions regulated? What's really going on and how much can you know that and then seek to change that in productive ways, you know, so that you're actually better functioning than you might otherwise think you could be. What sort of techniques do you use to change the way you are? Well, first is you have to be prepared to look at it and talk about it. Secondly, and take feedback from others, I might say, in terms of what they observe about those issues. No, but thank a lot you. Of the book, no, thank yes. you. I don't want feedback from other people. <laughs> well, that's one of the most interesting things people say. No, I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> Everyone else, I'm not irritable, I'm not angry, I'm not emotional, I don't have a short fuse, I don't have a problem, I don't get stuck on things, I'm not obsessional. So actually one of the things we dwell on a lot is the interaction with others, how we don't just function as individuals, we function as social groups, how important that actually is. And then secondly, how important that is to change in what we do in being able to kind of usefully look at feedback, but then use strategies in terms of anxiety reduction, in terms of cognitive strategies, in terms of the ways that you regulate your sleep-wake cycle, in terms of what you do about diet, exercise, other factors, and look at what is changeable, but also over what time frames, you know, what do you need to really do over longer periods. And really, I think specifically, work out what works for you. I mean, one of the problems with medical research in general is talking averages. Oh, well, on average, eat less or exercise more or sleep better or be less anxious. But how? to do that for you and being prepared to undertake that longer-term experimentation and hopefully improvement in some of our emotional and behavioural characteristics. Yeah, James, we heard Ian just say there about it's not just an individual pursuit, it's a collective thing when we are improving or maybe when our mental health is suffering. Hmm. Was that something that came as a surprise to you? Uh, Not really because, I mean, I look around my family and we're all completely different. I look around my friends and there's a certain – the reason we're friends is that we share a certain sensibility, but we all have different problems and we all have different personalities. And and I guess what we try and do in the book is when we're sharing strategies, the continual emphasis is here are seven strategies – it's almost certain not all of them will work for you. For example, if you're anxious or if you're trying to control your temper or whatever, they probably won't all work with you, but some of them probably will. So you go through – anxiety is a great example. Um, when, when I get anxious, the idea of arguing back at thoughts, you know, I could get attacked by a shark. No, there's not many sharks. Um, they probably won't attack me. That all just makes me – more anxious. But for some people, that works really, really well. For me, the only thing that works when I'm anxious is to just not engage with the thought. You might get eaten by a shark when you're swimming. I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to think about something else. That works for me. The other one, the other one doesn't. Other people are the opposite. Ian, we've only got a minute left, but just quickly, the final chapter of the book is called Seven Secrets to Happiness. Could you give us maybe just one or two spoilers? Oh, look, I like the last one. Act happy. (laughs) (laughs) Fake it till you make it. 
Well, yeah, actually doing a big emphasis in the book, Tegan, is doing things. You know, so being happy, being active. We can spend a huge amount of time talking about stuff that we never do. So I actually think one of the big uh, take-home messages in this book is go out, try stuff, including being happy. James, do you have a favourite technique? Yeah, having purposeful activity is a really great thing for happiness. And if you're lucky, it's your job, but it could be something else. It could be gardening, cooking, taking care of your family, painting, writing, something that you can get lost in that you'll probably never master, but you want to keep trying, something Mm. that you get excited about, having one of those. So many good tips. Ian, James, thanks so much for joining us. Great pleasure. Thank you. Professor Ian Hickey is co-director of Health and Policy at the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre. James O'Loughlin is an author, television and radio host and sometime colleague of ours here at the ABC. Minding Your Mind is published by Penguin Books and that's it for the Health Report this week. Yeah, we'll see you next week, same time, or on the ABC Listen app, whichever is your preference. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.